Welcome. Hello, hello. Hi. So, um, what do you think? Can we um, mix? You think we can do that? Is it okay? If it gets too warm, please just speak up, say something, and we'll put the air conditioning back on again. If anyone wants a chair, please just speak up and we'll get you a chair. And um, I see there are a few new faces here this evening. Why don't we just go around the room and uh, say hello and just tell us your name and something about yourself, you know, whether you know, you're wanted by the police or some other important detail that we should know about before we get started. Let's start on the left here. Say hello to the fans. Cher is uh, kind of a stalwart here. Have you been, how long have you been coming to these gatherings? Yeah, 15 years. 15 years or more? <laughs> Since she was basically five years old. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And Xanthi. I'm Xanthi. This is Xanthi. <laughs> also a New Yorker here. I'm Austin. I'm um, doing my master's work here at a master's here at Jiva Mukti. Okay, great. Welcome. Austin? Austin. Austin. Nice to meet you. I'm Frank. I've seen Austin's classes. He does a great deal of session. Oh. Very good. That's, that's a high recommendation. We, know, we all need a good deal of session. Yes? My name is Vatmanavan. 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 Pat is Pat and uh, and Kim are my neighbors on Long Island, and they become very good friends over time. We, you know, I see their kids playing soccer, and I don't know what you see of our house. But <laughs> thank you, Pat, for joining us. And Kim. I am Kim. <laughs> too 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 cool. And uh, Olga, say hi. Hello. <laughs> Olga's also, you've been coming here for a while as well. So we get to know one another, and some of these combinations become friendships outside of this room, which is very nice, very gratifying. Say hello. I'm Sandra. Coming to Jeevan Mukti for about 12 years, but only to this class for about a year. So, always happy to be here. So, 12 years means you knew Jeevan Mukti when it was at its Lafayette. last address on Lafayette Street? Mm -hmm. I did. I started out as a karma yoga person, doing the washing the mats and doing the towels and cleaning the bathrooms and Nothing like all the teachers. It's, it's like becoming the head of a major film studio by starting in the mailroom. Yeah. <laughs> same general, same, same humble origins like that. Great. But it was a lot. What's your name? Uh, my name is Michael. I'm actually a professor of psychology and world religions and engineering practice. Where do you where do you teach, Michael? Uh, actually, three different schools. I've got a connection at Yale, the medical school, and I have a connection at West. Teaching a course right now at Westchester Community College, and I have a connection at UConn and Sam. Where they all converge. Yeah. Well, you're you're in good company here. I, I would dare say, you know, correct me if you 
disagree, but I would say that a lot of our time in these um, Tuesday gatherings has been looking at the points of tangency between the ancient wisdom teachings of the Gita and the more progressive concepts in the world of psychology. The, the, the tracks are quite parallel. So it's wonderful having you here with us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I can remember looking at stuff as a teenager. Yeah. And, you know, trying to make heads or tails. <laughs> right. We're still doing that. We're still trying to make heads or tails. Good. Thank you. Thanks again for being here. And Ricky, um, I also knew Jim was doing it so Uh, where are you in school? At Hunter, I went to Hunter Elementary <laughs> back in the 1950s on 69th Street and Lex. Mm -hmm. So same thing. Same, same place. <laughs> same. And you, sir, what's your name? Uh, I'm Morty, and I was talking to my yoga teacher today telling him how much I like and who's where? Where was that? This was at Gilda's. Uh huh. Well, I thank you, and to Gilda for having suggested that you come. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. John, want to say hello to the folks? Sure. Uh, I'm John. Um, I, I realize I think I, I'm coming up in my first year to come to this uh, to this class. So that's exciting. And would you like to introduce your sure. guest? I can let her do it. But this is my mother, who I brought today. Uh, she's very curious. She's been reading um, Joshua's book, and she said, I, I have to come, so I couldn't say no. So uh, <laughs> I brought her here today. So I played the mother card. <laughs> <laughs> That's a strong card. That's Be careful with card. that one. It's really strong card. people just can't say no to. So. Right. I say your name. Yeah. My name is Robin. Um, and also, I've always been interested in psych you know, the intersection of psychology and Well, maybe that's <laughs> maybe that, that maybe that's an indication that that should be our theme here today. So we could get into that. You snuck in. Why don't you introduce yourself to the group? Hi everyone, I'm Seema. Good enough. Good. <laughs> Seema has also been coming fairly regularly, haven't you? Have. Been coming I've, for a while. I've been. I've been <laughs> So, are you? Um, have you gravitated to the sides of the rooms for political reasons? <laughs> no. All right. You're welcome to, you know, slide up closer if you want to, or I'll just speak up. How's that? Yes, Mike. Uh, announcements. Sorry. Oh, before we start, this one announcement. Please. Please. Uh, Rana Swami is coming next week. May May eighth. So two weeks. Two weeks. May eighth. Sorry. So I keep getting the dates mixed up. Um, so we will need people to come here early and help set up. It's a little bit of a zoo. Uh, my memory serves the last two times. We go into the big room and they got to get all the blankets and bolsters from all the rooms and set them up and keep people from wandering into the room and microphones and speakers. So if everybody that's regular comes like at 7.45 and helps set up, it would be a lot easier and smoother to this time around. So we don't cram in that one corner like we did last time. Yes. Run enough. Swami is um, 
He's, uh, he hails from the suburbs of Chicago. Is that how you say it? You hail from, <laughs> hails from the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, he was born, uh, we were born the same year, 1950. And uh, when he was 17, he set out for India. Even as a child, he had had this desire to know God. He wanted to understand God. His parents weren't devoutly religious. He was born in a Jewish family, like everybody. <laughs> and um, grew up with this impulse, some calling, if you will, to, to know God. And he had this awakening one day. Um, I think he was in Greece. He was just sitting there one day and a voice said, go to India. He had gone to Europe with some of his high school friends on, on summer break and this voice came to him, just go to India. And he followed that voice. And he went overland, if you can imagine, overland to India in 1967, coming close to death several times from all kinds of the most outrageous experiences you could imagine. And finally getting to the border of India where the border patrol refused him permission to enter. This is after months of trekking across Europe to get there. And um, he prayed and prayed and prayed. And finally there was a change of the border guard. <laughs> And he went up to the new person and just, you know, poured his heart out, saying, you know, someday, I mean, I have, the reason they wouldn't let him in is he had no money. He said, someday, if you please just let me into India, I will, I will try to do something for the people of India. And the border guard looked at him and said, you know, sometimes you just have to follow your heart. He took his passport, stamped entry, visa, let him in. Well, last year, when Radhanath Swami was received by the President of India in the Presidential Palace in Delhi, and he's walking to meet the President, he's remembering back on that moment when he was refused entry because he had nothing. And now he's uh, spearheading projects that feed somewhere upwards, I think they're up to about a half million plates. Now, Listen to that number again. 500,000 plates of freshly prepared, high-nutrition, hot meals served to indigent school children in the Bombay area every day. A half a million plates every day. I've, I've visited the, the plants. They have seven locations where they make these meals. Huge stainless steel vats where they use fresh vegetables, and it's different. Every day is different. It's not the same dish every day. They change it up, fresh vegetables and high-protein rice and dal, and these things are under absolutely pristine, clean conditions, and then they're poured into these individually sealed stainless steel tiffins, or, or you know, individual bowls, loaded onto trays that are then fitted into customized vans so that you get the maximum amount of storage in them. And they're driven to these schools where children from the poor districts of Bombay 
get a hot meal. And because of the hot meal, attendance has risen something extraordinary. The kids had no reason to go to school. If your stomach is growling and you're hungry, it's hard for you to pay attention to class. So they come because they're going to get a hot meal. And as a result of that, attendance has increased. Averages in their classes, their performance has increased. And so, on. so that's just one of many things that Radhanath Swami is doing. And I just saw him here today. He's in New York. And I, you know, it kind of leaves me without words because he's someone who clearly has cleared up a lot of karma in previous lives so that the things that challenge us, that weigh so heavily on us, are not a problem for him. He's dealt with that. At least for me, my impression is that this is someone who has dealt with a lot of kind of baggage that still exercises us every day in previous lives. So he's clear now. He's clear to just dedicate himself to others. And he's a very, very selfless. There's no ego there. I don't see any ego. Very rare. So the custom, I forget, I'm sorry, I apologize. A little bit of a detour. Yes? Is he an enlightened being? I would say, yes. My, I mean, my sense of enlightened being. Like I, I would say yes in that sense of someone who has achieved a, a, a place of um, pure, completely unselfish motive and impeccable intent behind his actions, his thoughts, his words. In that sense, I would say yes, he's not. At Jiva Mukti, there's a convention where we start <clears throat> with a recitation of the Om mantra. And the, um, and the Sanskrit texts, Om is considered the primal sound, the vibration that set creation in motion. And so in that sense, it is a, a stimulus to the deepest part of consciousness. So by starting by chanting Om, we're just kind of setting a good mood we're getting into an interesting discussion and then because it's the Bhagavad Gita gathering and this is Krishna's teachings we then chant the Krishna mantra as a way of honoring the speaker of the Gita so we chant the Om mantra all together and then the Krishna mantra is chanted responsibly so I'll chant once and then we can all chant together so shall we do that we get to a comfortable place Kind of leave New York outside now.
Lovely to be with you again. And those of you I'm meeting for the first time, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, my name is Joshua Green. And when my teacher, Prabhupada, also known by the, the full-length unabridged name, His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, uh, gave me diksha, or initiation, into Vaishnava practice, or devotional practice yoga, bhakti yoga, in 1970. He gave me the name Yogeshwar, so sometimes you'll hear people calling me Yogeshwar, which is my initiated name. Um, <clears throat> we've been studying Bhagavad Gita together, discussing this for the last five years here at Jiva Mukti. And we do one verse a week, so we're only in the fourth chapter. There's no shame in that. And um, actually, we use these verses as, a, as, an, as, an, as an excuse, really, <laughs> to kind of go off on discussions of things that are of importance or of interest to us. So, um, this fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is a particularly challenging chapter in many ways. It's the first time that Krishna 
<laughs> you might say, comes clean <laughs> and describes to his warrior disciple Arjuna who he is. He describes his identity for the first time. And knowing that it's going to be difficult for Arjuna to make this leap into a rather theistic understanding of his teachings, he makes some recommendations to him along the way. Not the least of which comes up later on in the fourth chapter. In verse 34. So I'm jumping ahead just a little bit. Yeah, the 34th verse, which is on page 220, uh, is a topic that we've been discussing for the past few, week, few weeks, and it has to do with initiation. It has to do with what it means to accept someone as your guru, as your spiritual teacher. Right? So here's this verse, and then we'll come back next week to where we left off earlier in the chapter. Tadvidhi <clears> pranipattena Pariprashnena sevaya, upadakshanti te jnanam, jnaninas tattva darshana. Now these verses are actually sung. There's a melody to the verses in Sanskrit. It's a very beautiful language. And uh, different verses have different cadence. So the way this verse might sound, if it were sung in one of the traditional melodies, it might sound like this. <clears throat> Tadvidhi pranipatena pariprashnena sevaya upadekshanti te jnanam jnaninas tattva darshana. The translation of this verse, Krishna tells Arjuna, just try to learn the truth by approaching a spiritual master. Inquire from him submissively and render service unto him. The self-realized soul can impart knowledge unto you because they have seen the truth. The hymn here, by the way, should not be mistaken. There are women gurus just as much as there are men gurus because sometimes English requires certain arbitrary conventions or styles. So Prabhupada has chosen to use he when they, there is a single individual being spoken of. But you can understand that there are uh, women gurus just as frequently as men gurus. And uh, this, uh, because these teachings are not always isolated in one verse, I want to read the next verse for you as well. Yaj gyatva napunan moham evam yas yasi pandava Having obtained real knowledge from a self-realized soul, you will never fall again into such illusion. For by this knowledge you will see that all living beings are but part of the Supreme, or in other words, that they are mine. So here we have kind of a two-part formula that Krishna is proposing. One is... If you're looking to progress spiritually, find a teacher. Find, don't, don't try to tackle this on your own. It's too big, <laughs> is the message here. The subtext is that if you attempt to take on something that is so complex, without proper guidance, you're going to get tripped up. You're going to find yourself confused, frustrated, and perhaps even angry. And when you become angry, then you're just going to say, you know, the whole thing is a bunch of hooey, and you'll leave it aside. So rather than 
becoming bewildered about it. Find someone who can guide the dialogue, who can help that discussion along. And the qualifications are here as well, that such a person must be self-realized. Elsewhere in the Vedic text, there's a description. There are two parts to being a qualified guru or teacher. Srotriyam and Brahmanishtam. Tad Vigyanartham Sagurum Eva Abhigachchet Samitpani Srotriyam Brahmanishtam. Tadpani means in your hands you bring firewood. In the ancient Indian system, when you would go to a teacher, you'd bring an offering of some kind. These days it's called tuition. <laughs> but in those days, whatever you could afford, if you were from a wealthy family, you would bring gold or silk or some valuable offering. And if you came from a family of humble means, you might bring a little sack of rice. Whatever you could afford, that was the going rate. There was no, you know, you pay your 10 grand or else you can't attend. That wasn't the, the method. So Tad... To know that jnanam, that knowledge, sagurum eva, to the guru, one must approach samitpani with firewood in hand. At least something you should bring for the sacrificial fire. Go to the woods, get some wood, and bring that. Samatpani, and what are the qualifications of a teacher? Shrutriyam brahmanishtam. Shruti, there are two kinds of scriptures in the Indian tradition. One is called Shruti, and the other is called um, uh, smriti Sh- uh, Shruti text in, in the Bhagavad Gita there's a verse where Krishna tells Arjuna now hear from me Shruti means that which was heard directly from God from the divine or veiled text original divine knowledge spoken at the dawn of time as a kind of guidebook for humanity that Shruti text that which is heard Smriti means remembered, remembered and discussed. Now that would refer to the commentaries. In Judaism you have also the, the text, the original text, the uh, Torah text, and then you have the commentaries. The same is true in the ancient Sanskrit tradition, that there are the original Shruti texts, and then the commentaries by great sages and, 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 and learned scholars. So, Shrotriyam uh, means that one has heard from the lineage, that one's knowledge, true teacher's knowledge, is not invented. It's something that has been received through a qualified, authentic lineage of teachers. When you apply for your degree, when you go for a degree, you go to an institution of higher education that has some cachet, you want to know what is the history here because if I'm going to a place that has roots, that has history, I have some comfort that the knowledge that I will receive has come down from qualified teachers. Right? You might not necessarily be as enthusiastic about something that just started yesterday and you don't know who the staff is and you don't know what the quality of the education is going to be. So the Shruti texts are taught in a lineage, in a line of teachers. And because this was an oral tradition, you know, in ancient India, there were no books. There was a time, never mind before Kindle, there was a time there were no books. And everything was orally transmitted. 
disciples, students would come as we do here. We come, we sit down. This teacher would speak, and the students would memorize, memorize the text. I think our memories, do you remember, well, most of you are too young, but maybe we remember the first time that we were allowed to bring calculators into class. You remember that? I think that's when our math skills just went right out the window. As soon as it was okay to use a calculator, all of a sudden those mental skills started to get compromised. So the old school method, if you will, of spiritual life was you didn't, you know, download files, you know, and, and it was heard, you would listen, you had to be very attentive, heard and then repeated. So Shrotriyam, a true teacher is someone who's coming in that lineage, they have, if you will, the proper credentials. And then, most important, Brahmanishtam. Brahmanishtam means realized knowledge, that they're walking their talk. You know, most of us, I, I teach at Hofstra, that's a good place to be, but I must tell you, there are some people there, I wonder how they ever got in. <laughs> I'm really quite sure how they managed to, you know, land a teaching position there, because, you know, you, you know their behavior is somewhat questionable. I'm not going to mention any names, you understand. But my point is that the, the Vedic system, the you know, traditional Indian system, is you want to learn from a teacher who is not only full of knowledge, but who has also realized that knowledge and who lives that knowledge, who is humble. First qualification of a true teacher is humility. That's there in the Bhagavad Gita coming up in the 15th chapter. The first stage of wisdom. The first step toward enlightenment is humility. There's a lovely example given in India that a tree that is barren of fruit stands very tall and proud. A tree that is laden with fruit bends low. So someone who is full of knowledge is by nature humble. They're humbled by that knowledge. So these are the qualifications of a teacher. And here Krishna is recommending to our look, here is Krishna himself. The goal of the Vedas, the Supreme Brahman in person, standing before Arjuna, and he's, Krishna is telling Arjuna, find a teacher. Go find someone else who can help you with this stuff. Very revealing thing. Even those, someone, uh, Sherry, you were asking me if I thought Radhanath Swami is a, an enlightened being. One sign of an enlightened being is that they always offer respect to their teacher before them and to the teachers before them. They don't take credit. They don't take personal credit. This is my truth that I am pronouncing for you. Teacher is a vehicle. So, that's a very humble place to be. A very, very humble place to be. I'm not inventing anything. In fact, sitting here like this is a great responsibility. To the, I know it looks like a blanket. It's actually called the Vyasasana. <laughs> when you sit here in a Bhagavad Gita class talking like this, you're on the seat of Vyasa. Vyasa was the sage in the Vedic period who was credited with having compiled this oral tradition in written form in the original Shruti texts. So the seat of the asana of Veda, of, of Veda Vyasa, is the Vyasasana. So sitting here means that I'm representing that lineage. And what I speak to you is meant to represent that tradition without deviation, without change. 
So those of you who know me know how miserably I fail at that because we go in a very different direction here. We consciously poke at the teachings in order to figure out how on earth does this apply to the world we know in the 21st century. I mean, you know, you, you want to make a scholar laugh? Just tell an Asian studies professor that what we're actually studying here is the same words and the same text that Krishna spoke to Arjuna 5,000 years ago. I mean, what evidence do we have other than the faith of the tradition to believe that this is the same text that Krishna spoke to Arjuna 5,000 years ago? There are no Dead Sea Scrolls in India. There's no ancient version somehow calcified, you know, like the, like the, there are columns in India that embed, the Shoka columns, that embed certain teachings in India that are there for 2,000, 2,500 years. And they were, that's what they were meant to be. They were meant to be proof positive that this teaching was known at this time and in this place. Texts that are written on banana leaf and papyrus and the bark of trees are very, very delicate and they, they are very, very subject to deterioration at the least little bit of, humil of humidity. So these ancient texts in their original form are no longer available to us. All that we have is this tradition. All that we have is the word of these teachers, which is why it is so important that for someone to become a teacher, they have to walk their talk so that they do not deviate and do not betray that tradition. So what we do here, while it's risky business, my job is to try and at least keep the conversation on track so that we do not betray the spirit of the teachings. It's okay to question them. In fact, it's more than okay, it's required. You are required by being here to challenge me on anything that I tell you. That's your obligation. My obligation is to tell you what I know and what I've understood and what I've learned. Your job is to come at me from every angle you can think of to see if it stands up. And if I don't know something, I have to admit that. I have to admit that I don't know something. For example, I will admit to you that one of the reasons why today we are reading 4th chapter verse 34 is that our verse that we're supposed to be reading today Verse 12, I don't have a clue what it means. So I'm coming clean. I'm in, I'll read to you verse 12, okay? Here's, here's the verse that we were supposed to read today. Kangshata karmanam sidhim yajanta iha devata chipram hi manushe loke sidhir bhavati karma ja. Men in this world desire success in fruit of activities. And therefore, they worship the demigods. Quickly, of course, men get results from fruitive work in this world. I don't know. I can guess. I can tell you because Prabhupada has offered a commentary. I can read the commentary. But even the commentary is, in a sense, stuck in a cultural vernacular and a historic language and vocabulary that doesn't resonate particularly well with us New Yorkers in 2012. 
<laughs> All right? It's that simple. But probably there's one line in the commentary that I found that kind of maybe we can make something out of that. And then we're, that's here when Prabhupada says, to achieve temporary things, people worship the, the demigods or powerful men in human society. That started to ring a bell for me. You know, they, you, know you suck up to some powerful person because maybe they can you know, open some doors for you. I mean, that made sense to me. If, if a man gets ministership in the government by worshipping a political leader, he considers that he has achieved a great boon. All of them are therefore kowtowing to the so-called leaders or big guns in order to achieve temporary boons. Well, if you kind of <laughs> translate that a little bit, you know, demigods in this sense might be the equivalent of powerful people, movers and shakers, you know, the Turks on Wall Street or whatever. So there's some... But beyond that, you know, demigod worship is not something that we have to deal with on a daily basis here in, in the downtown areas of New York City. So I skipped over it. Skipped over. So I'm, I'm fessing up. I'm coming clean. That that's why we're starting to we're continuing our conversation from last time about initiation of the spiritual master because that's something a little more comfortable talking about. All right. Okay. That's enough. What do you think? Any questions? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Any comments? How many of you were here last week for Dhanudar Swami's presentation? By the way. Okay, what did you think? Did you like his talk? Yeah. Faith and thoughtfulness. Faith and? Thoughtfulness. And thoughtfulness, yeah. Which is what he touched upon today. Okay. Well, who was it who raised the question? Was it you, Michael? You usually have something provocative to say. Someone was asking about how do you know whether you're interpreting the teachings properly or, you know, misinterpreting them you know, and going off on a tangent. Somebody asked that. Who was it? Is that you? Frank, you were asking about that? What was the thought behind the question? I'm curious to know where that question came from. It's a good question, you know, because well, that's what we're doing. We're interpreting here. So what, what made you wonder if, if you go too far off the deep end? Yeah, um, the, um, there's a later chapter, is it 16th chapter, I think? 16? That's dedicated to the super soul. It's, um, I should know this. It's one of the later chapters that deals with the super soul, which is God in the heart, that voice of wisdom that speaks to us all the time but we don't always listen to we don't listen to that voice that's resonating from the world around us for a number of reasons one is we're not interested that's one reason this little people aren't interested they just don't, whatever you guys are into it's very nice I hope you have a good time I got dinner plans so one is just disinterested 
Another is fear of what you're going to hear. When you listen to that inner voice, what it says may be the very thing you don't want to do, and it usually is. <laughs> it's how we got here in the first place. Another reason is that <clears throat> we may not understand it, we'll misinterpret So there's kind of a static interference because of a psychic conditioning. You know that most, um, some of my friends who are, you might call them religious mediators, sometimes it's also called track two d diplomats, talk about how <clears throat> when you have warring nations or warring tribes or warring factions, I don't, some astonishing statistic, like 80% or something, of the conflicts in the world arise over not hearing the words that are actually being said. There's, there's a disconnect between the intent behind certain words and how those words are received and interpreted. So listening with wide open ears and without those filters is another reason it's hard to achieve. And it's those filters that often also stop us from understanding the wisdom that's within us. So your question is very well placed. I can tell you what I think it means to take a spiritual master, to approach someone who's a teacher and to accept initiation from them. I can tell you what I think. As soon as I, I say something that's different from what I've learned in this disciplic line, we're starting to go out on the thin ice. And this is a conversation that I have all the time now with my God brothers and God sisters. You know, there's a building down at 25 First Avenue called the Bhakti Center. They're trying desperately to, you know, implant in New York a community of devotional practitioners. And, and, and to, to do that is, God, it's hard. You know, we were talking about this. The Buddhist community, they've got it down. The Buddhists have got it down, you know? Very approachable now. Very approachable. Well, what do they have going for them? Well, first of all, Buddhism is non-theistic. That's already a big plus, <laughs> huge plus over a bhakti or devotional tradition. Huge. You know, when you don't got to deal with the idea of somebody out there somewhere who's going to you know, like show up and kind of spoil the party, it already makes things a lot easier. Buddhism, I think, also has this crossover with the plight, the struggle of the Tibetan people. So there's a sense of aligning through Buddhism with a noble cause. There's also, to my mind, and one of the reasons why I appreciate Buddhism so much, there's a very beautiful kind of an austere aesthetic to Buddhism. It's very beautiful in a very austere, simple way. The, the image in my mind of Buddhism is very clean, uncluttered, pure, yeah, void of thought, allowing the thoughts to just disappear like bubbles rising in the ocean and disappearing. Yeah. Emptiness. Huh? Well, it's called emptiness. It's the whole emptiness. point of yeah. Buddhist enlightenment is, yeah. is to lack attachment to the object yeah. Right. 
But it's very appealing, isn't it? It takes a lot of work, though, through lots and lots and lots of work. So, Absolutely. So you said you don't have to deal with something yeah. out there, someone, someone, yeah, yeah. yeah big class, right. but you do have to deal with right. everything that you have inside yeah. because that's all. Yeah. And hardcore, yeah. deal with that, deal yeah. with it. Yeah. Otherwise, you won't get empty. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or, chip the so hard, but it's all about mm -hmm. tackling your chip. Yeah, the, the, for those of you who may not be familiar with the phrase chitta vritti, um, it, it's often uh, translated as the, 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 the chattering of the mind, the vacillations of the mind, or the mind is always off and running, doing its thing. So the, the, to calm uh, chitta vritti naroda, it's described in the Yoga Sutras, that yoga is meant to calm down that jittery, mind uh, so Buddhism has a lot going for it in New York and they've got the variety of meditation meetings, the Dharma sessions you know, all kinds of cool stuff going on the devotional cults, the bhakti community wow, first of all it's the exact opposite of blankness the exact opposite way, way exact opposite filled with colorful deities and altars and flowers and garlands and posters and paintings and you know you get what you decorate yourself and you wear saris and dotis and you know garlands huh it's a very emotional thing as well that's right there's there's an embrace of the sensuality of the self of the emotion of the self it's chanting and dancing you know it's giving vents to all of that you know it's a joyous explosive thing as opposed to that quieting down and going there. So there's already this, you know, woo other thing. And it's very highly theistic. I mean, there's, you know, Krishna. You know, like, look what we got here. Right? We have an altar with Radha and Krishna on it. Right? So we're dealing with that. So the conversation is always going on. And this addresses your question from last week, Frank. How far is too far? In order to make feel, people feel comfortable here, how far do we have to go? We were talking about this earlier. How far do you go before what happens is that you started to water down the tradition where that shruti lineage has now started to become just another commercialized, you know, app on your iPhone, you know. I mean, when, when do things start, you know, really losing their potency, their power, their meaning, the depth it's a very difficult question. You know, people generally won't go to a place of worship, you know, maybe once out of curiosity, unless you're born Hindu and that's what you do. That's what my family's always done, my grandparents, that's how I grew up. So I do it. You've got family ritual like that. Well, you know, it's comfortable, it's familiar. But a thinking person, I have a real tough time with this because I think in some ways, that, you know, there's a distance between me and my brother, and I think it's because of that. I really do. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> your godbrother or your brother brother? No, no, my brother is a physicist. You know, he comes from this very, you know, line of thinking. And uh, I think that, you know, we don't see each other as often as we once did. And I think in some measure it's because he just can't figure me out. You know, like what, what, you know. My family thinks I'm off the deep end. Off the deep end, you know, like, you know, what happened to him? You know, all of a sudden he went Hare Krishna. You know, 
Gee whiz. That's, no, that's like, a, it's, it's like a disease, you know. It's like something you'd find in the diagnostic, diagnostic manual of conditions, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm just thinking for myself personally, since being a child, and, and like you were talking about Radhanath Swami, looking for that connection to God, but not even knowing if it was called God or what it was, just wanting mm -hmm. to know what, what existence was and what it was about. Mm -hmm. And then when you have been through many traditions and then get to that one place that feels really comfortable, well, it doesn't really feel comfortable, but it feels, um, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Bhakti Center is uh, really wonderful teachers there that are well. It's certainly heartfelt. There's a sincerity that comes across. That's not necessarily a uh, an intellectually describable thing. But it's not easy. I have lots of questions. I have mm -hmm. even, even more so now and mm -hmm. from our discussions from the other week when you said, oh, this is the point where people get up and, and leave. Always happen. Oh, you yeah. Know, oh, yeah. It seems like it's... They're dropping like flies, I'm telling you. As soon as you start talking about, you know, Krishna as a person, yeah. it's, it's like, so long. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, look, get this... Any, anyone else want to... Yeah. Say your name again. Michael. Michael. Yes. You reminded me of something that happened almost 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Almost 40 years ago. So when you were just a, a lad. I was a teenager. Hanging out in Kopanko. And at the time, there was every conceivable religious group just hanging out on Sunday afternoon. Coconut Grove. Just Coconut Grove. Yeah. Okay, Krishna people will be somewhere at one part of the park and Jesus people somewhere else, Ekankar, Scientology, you name it, there'll be Vajans groups, everybody was down there hanging out the same thing, but it was kind of fun because you can go from one group to the other, <laughs> talking about the other group, and have these long discussions. And I remember talking to a fellow that I knew for a really long time, that Krishna food was the best of the best, but everybody would migrate there in some fuck to hang out, and talk to Krishna food. It was very nice, and it was very nice, we'd get into it, and it was kind of interesting, because this guy, I, I thought he was from for years and for months and months I've talked to him. He was a friend of mine and I talked. We're having a discussion about Jesus. He jumps up one day and he goes, what type of church? And whatever else I want to say, what else he said, but it was kind of a nice comment. And I said, what's your, what's your name again? And he gave me a long Indian name. And he jumps up again and he goes, formerly, <laughs> formerly Herbert Epstein from the Bronx. And I was like, what? And it was kind of enlightening because it was, it was interesting in that he had a lot of the bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it was important for him to look like he was a man. Mm -hmm. It was important for him to dress a certain way. Yeah. But the core truths were among all the groups. Yeah. On one level, they were, they were there. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of interesting because I just, I was, today I taught a class in abnormal psychology. Okay, in the, early in the day. I was invited by someone I know to meet the president of the New York Scientologist. Okay, and this president was kind. Okay, and I, you know, 
had a different attitude 40 years ago about how to approach people with different ideas. Mm -hmm. And I decided to listen and really kind of get a feel for where this woman was coming from. And she was so pleasant. She spent two hours talking. This is the president of the organization. And then she starts talking about things that relate to the shoppers, things that relate to uh, Steve, uh, what's his name, Brown's work, okay, the lost symbols, and all these things that, you know, if I didn't listen, I would just have a whole different and it was kind of interesting because we also had a discussion about how I, I had the opportunity to bring in some different things from meditation, also bring in some stuff from dynamics, okay, which is very interesting today. Now it was, it's very, it's evolved over the last 40 years as well. I saw that organization almost 40 years ago, I walked in the building and couldn't believe it. And it was just kind of interesting to see how these connections were even between the reactive mind and the thoughts about where this stuff is coming, that stuff is coming from, how a lot of the real you know, thoughts that are uh, spurious and, and uh, aberrated and some, we really have to do with past deaths and traumas that go from lifetime to lifetime, even back to the genetic line when we're, when we're you know, clams and, and uh, you know, lower level animals and sharks are coming after us and all that stuff, it's still built in and a genetic line. All this stuff kind of, you know, comes about. In, yeah, in I mean, when you listen with ears a little wide open, it's surprising what you can hear. Yeah, you look at the, I just had an email before about someone who was a leader of HeartMath. And it's kind of interesting because that's another one. She's talking about how it's, it's come to the fore. People are, are, are measuring brain wave, I mean, heart wave coherence. Mm -hmm. You make me very thoughtful, and, and uh, I want to do a little experiment here. I haven't done this before, but um, I, you make me thoughtful. Some of you have been coming to this little, you know, do that we have here for, um, you know, a few years now. Some of you a few months, some of you a few weeks, some of you here for the first time. I'm very curious to know your impressions. Why? Why do you come here? What is it that... What resonates for you? What is it about this place, this discussion that we have, that, that makes sense? Yeah, Nick, what's, well, what is it for you? For, for me, it's, you know, I really like doing like, physical practice of yoga, right. breathing, and stretching, and so on. And, um, I'm you know, curious to know whether it's uh, beginnings, and it seems to me like this scripture and these ancient texts um, gave birth to this practice that I now do and I get a lot of joy from it. Mm. But I'm, I'm also, and I'm also going to say, I came across the Oppenheimer biography a couple of years ago. He uh, got inspiration from, from Gita. Yeah. And, um, and that because I, I, I enjoyed reading biography and I was always, I kind of picked my curiosity about what was Gita. And so I kind of like, you know, because like I was thinking, I was really thinking about this when we talked about initiation and so on. Because like I, I honestly like I don't think I'm anywhere. My, my life is in no. I, I can't put my duckies in a row to think about something like that. You know, initiation. I, my lifestyle is, is too. Erratic. That's so sweet. And, I mean, <laughs> put your duckies in a row. Love that. You know, but I, I, I have this like sixth sense that there's something very special about these texts and there's something worth learning it on maybe a scholarly level and who knows what that will lead to, but um, I, I, I think it's worthwhile. And also, um, I, I, a lot of, I've come out of here um, with very clear memories of really nice stories that you've told, you know, the kid playing stickball 
and like, you know, you told us once about if you ever have a conflict with someone at work, serve them and see how that conflict melts away. I like that stuff. And so those are good things to like, take away and you know, put into my life. So that's why I keep coming. Yeah, the stories are good. <laughs> that's a good reason. That's a good reason. It's better than the TV joke. <laughs> the jokes are bad. You got to remember. The jokes are so bad. Come on. You don't know. That's embarrassing. I do. You tell the joke. Oh. Sorry, sorry. They've gotten better over the years. Have they really? Okay. All right. So once for the stories, someone else for the jokes. No, right, this is good. This is helpful. Olga, why do you keep coming? Yeah, that's why I come. I come also. I want to hear what people have to say. So you come here to be irrational, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I, it's good company. Very good company. Not the kind of company you usually get. And uh, it's very honest. And I, I, that, that, if there's anything that I take satisfaction in, you know, and having achieved here, maybe it's having been able somehow to contribute a little bit to creating an environment where people are comfortable speaking openly and honestly. That's, that's a gift. That's a real gift to speak from your heart like that. Thank you. That's great. I'm not going to ask you. You don't, you're just, you're sitting there and think, oh, now he's going to ask me. I don't want him to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> you know I love Tuesdays. You know I love Tuesdays. Right? <laughs> I live for Tuesdays. So. Get away from kids. Get away from kids. That's a good reason. Get away from the kids. That's a good reason. Everything about Tuesday is great for me. I get to cook. I get to go to the city all the way from Long Island. It's like Disneyland here. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that's what her son said. She didn't that's make that up. That's what her son says. <laughs> Yeah, Cher, what's, what's up with you? Um, well, one of the reasons why I like coming here is because there's a, uh, there's permission to say and, and participate in a situation where you can talk about things that you're not being judged for. Mm. Or the, and there is no um, competition. Uh, in some of the Christian communities that I've been involved in in the past, there was a lot of intellectual expression of uh, intellectual prowess over who know who knows the Bible more than the other and interpretation of the Bible and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and, and there was also a certain amount of judgment going on in, in the teaching of the Bible, who yeah. is the Bible. Yeah. And there was just so much thou shalt not, that there was no real discussion of what, what can you do? What, what is it really to be 
guilty of Christ? What does that really mean? Mm. And that particular question I felt wasn't really, um, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was really allowed. Uh, I had a conversation. My father uh, is Baptist, and they all belong to one of the biggest Baptist churches in the country. And they have great pride and, and great love for the Bible and great love for the church. I listened to their conversations with each other, and there's a lot of competition going on. And um, when I talked a little bit about um, what I do, because they said, oh, you go to these spiritual programs, what are they about? And I'm like, <laughs> I dare tell them. And, and uh, so I talked to her a little bit about Krishna, and uh, she says, yes, but what about Christ? You mean this is a spiritual program that doesn't teach about the life of Christ? And I thought, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I said, I said, I think the thing to acknowledge here is the fact that all religions have the opportunity to teach us how to be better people. And I said, that is the spiritual program that I belong to helps me to do that. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Wow. That was good. I wiggled out of that somehow. <laughs> <laughs> You're wiggling. You're wiggling. I'll tell you why I keep coming, other than I have to. Um, I've been doing this thing for, well, since you went to Scientology 40 years ago. And uh, I'm coming to a place where I'm just now beginning to realize how much I don't know about it. I used to think I understood it. And I'm, I'm beginning to understand now that I don't. And the reason I, I say that is not out of some false sense of modesty or anything like that, but because I haven't yet figured out how to speak in a language that people who are not already committed to the culture can understand. It's easy to give a class at, you know, at the Bhakti Center or in a Krishna temple. It's easy. I can just get in there and start yakking away. You know, This verse, that verse, Krishna says that you know, the acharyas say, you know, the commentaries say, that's easy. But how do you take that and migrate it into a language, into finding a vernacular, you know, a language, a, a, a vocabulary, concepts, phrases, that makes this sense to somebody who may have absolutely no interest in this stuff? You know, and it's just, just you know, has what most people have as an image of religion, per se, as something utterly to be avoided by any thinking person. Why would, my goodness, why would you want to be involved in that? So that's why I realize now I don't know much about this I, and, and why these conversations are a healthy thing for me. Um, I, I know a little bit. Here's what I do know. I, I, I know that when the Gita talks in the second chapter about how what keeps this body moving, what keeps us alive, is there's in the region of the heart, there is a spark of energy. That's the Atma, that's the soul. And that's the engine, the energetic engine that's driving this machine. And when the soul leaves, the body is there. I, you want to hear, do you like stories? I'll tell you a story. At one point I did an article for a, a magazine on a, a, an Indian gentleman who was head of an emergency ward. It was St. Joseph's Hospital in Carbondale, uh, Pennsylvania. 
and he was head of the emergent the ER, and he was a surgeon. And I got permission to go, and I did some photography, so I interviewed him and also did photographs. I got permission to go into the operating room while he was doing an open-heart surgery. Just like you see on, you know, on the shows on television, you know, you, do, you wash up, you get into the scrubs, you know, you put on the mask and everything, and they, you know, had, had me wrap my camera, except for a small hole where the aperture was. And I got, and I'm watching this, and it was blowing my mind. They cut this guy open, you know, they knock him out with, you know, anesthesia. Is that it? Anesthesia? And so he's lying there. They cut him open. They take a crank thing like you'd use to lift your car, like a jack where you're going to change a tire. And they're, you know, like cranking open his rib cage. And they're reaching in and, you know, like fishing around in there, putting this organ over here, and they take this out and putting it over there. And they're trying to get to the heart. So you got all this stuff in the way. And it's a freaking machine. It's a machine. It's all these parts. And I'm looking at the blood's all over the place and you know the liver's over here and the kidneys and who knows what all. It's just like hanging out. <laughs> hanging out. And then they get to the heart. And, and I'm looking at this thing. You know, pumping away in there. And saying, my God, that's where the soul is you know, energizing that organ. And, and then, you know, watching them hook it up to other blood flow and this and that. And afterwards, his name was uh, Mahajan, Dr. Mahajan. So I'm interviewing him. I say, what, you must have some amazing realizations, you know, doing open-heart surgery. And I said, you know, among other questions, I said, what's it like when you lose a patient? How, do you, how does that make you feel? I mean, it must be a terrible thing when you lose a patient. He says, of course it's a terrible thing, but I have to tell you something. It is an extraordinarily spiritual experience because one moment you're there and you know life is present. This body is alive. There is a life force there that is moving that heart, that is keeping this person alive, and the next minute that life force is gone. Everything is still there. All the organs are still there. The brain is there. The cerebral cortex, the central nervous system, all the organs, everything is still there. Where did the life go? Where is that life force? Where did that go? He says, it is an amazing thing to see. That was an amazing, for me, that was, you know, I remember that. That was 25 years ago, whatever. I remember that experience of being there and watching this thing going on. And I'm saying, my God, this is the second chapter, Bhagavad Gita, come alive. This is the whole, right there on the operating table, the second chapter, Bhagavad Gita. This body, yantra rudrani maya, this is a yantra, this is a machine, this body. The Gita uses that word yantra, it's a machine. And it's operating. Why is it operating? Because there's a source of energy there, that's the Atma. That you will find in every wisdom tradition. Why do I like it the way it's described in the Gita? Because it's very explicit. It's not hinted at or generally suggested or said in kind of religious terms. It's very, very real, very practical language. That the body is made of earth elements, all these different elements. 
And when the soul is present, those elements come together and they form a body. When the soul leaves, the elements disperse. The water elements go back to the totality of water elements. The earth elements go back to the totality of earth elements. The air goes back to the air. It all goes back to where it came from. And where does the life go? Where does that entity who was the resident within that machine, where did that go? But that I know in, in my heart of hearts is something real. Michael? You reminded me of something. One time I had to, well, actually, when I took gross anatomy, I had a double PhD. Part of it was biomedical systems. I had to do anatomy, which was kind of interesting, actually. But I had to be in special places. I was working full time, and I had to do this in a special arrangement, and it happened someplace in Long Island. And uh, I remember that the, the person I was working with as my mentor in this class kind of changed out. He used to be a surgeon. Which is why in India they, they burn the bodies. The cre cremation is, at least from the traditional perspective in India, a way of detaching that soul or that atma from its physical residence so that it's not hanging around. So we can get very attached to a body. We've been in this body our whole life, our house. And so in order to liberate that person from that attachment, you know, burn the body and then they can... That's at least the explanation that's given. Well, I'll do it right there. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And this is just one of the things you remind me of something else. I remember seeing something about Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was into everything you could imagine. You know, and Priscilla on TV was discussing about her husband. And somebody came up to him one time after a concert and said, How come you're wearing a Hindu something or other, a Buddhist this, and a Star of David, and a crucifix with a Native American jacket, and you're singing Negro Baptist's gospel? <laughs> his answer was, I ain't taking any chance. I'm not taking any chance. I want to cover all my bases. He was also with the Parvanasa Yoga and a few other things. Yeah, think you might have read that portion in the book where George Harrison met Elvis Presley. I don't know if I've gotten there yet. Oh, I won't give it away then. No, but I'm listening very carefully. Yeah. The, the point was that a lot, of, a lot of us, and I know, I, you know, a lot of people are kind of scared to die. 
Yeah. You think? We've talked about this in the past that that fear of death, part of it is of course just being afraid of not knowing what's going to happen to you. It, will it be? Will it hurt me? Will it be painful? You know, uh, if I cease to be after I die, that's a fearful thing. You know, the idea of disappearing and not being anymore. And also because we're talking about the connections with psychology, and this came out of that story with the guy who was playing baseball. You know, with his crutches. You know, the fear of dying. I think is often a fear of not having lived sufficiently. That if I die now, I haven't really experienced my life yet. I don't want to die because there's so much more that I want to know. There's so much more that I want to fulfill in my life. And so in some respects, that's what the Bhagavad Gita is. It's what Krishna is telling Arjuna is, don't die not having lived. Stand up and fight. Stand up and fight. Get up and go in there and do what you need to do now and, and see, just see. It may be a scary thing, but watch what happens. It's going to be a lot better than just sitting here and doing nothing. I'm curious about some of the people that you've come across, uh, some of these great teachers. Do they, even understanding all this, is there still a fear of the unknown, fear of death, conversations and feelings about I've been very privileged to know some great teachers. To my mind, what makes them great is that they were able to accept their humanness with grace. What made them great was not that they, they, you know, they floated six inches off the ground and lived in some rarefied realm of you know, constant ecstasy but that they accepted their humanness with grace. And that means that they were almost, yes, I think without exception, they were able to laugh at themselves, at their own shortcomings. I'm thinking of specific people now who never, ever, for a moment, ever thought themselves better than anybody else. Not for a moment. I, I, it's, it's probably some inherent quality of true enlightenment, true spiritual realization that it, it, uh, you naturally come to appreciate everybody else a little more because you know now what they're going through and where it can bring them, just as, your, just as that person's journey has brought him or her. So you're seeing people on a path. You're seeing people on their way to Krishna. And you recognize, my gosh, isn't this an amazing thing that's going on here? Every one of us in our own way, we're, we're you know, inching our way, clawing our way forward towards some more civilized way of living, some more sensical way of seeing the life around us which seems such total nonsense making some kind of order out of the chaos and, and seeing the miracle in that and serving that 
They live to serve that. The great souls, I called, I would share that phrase with you, great souls. They live to serve others and they're happy doing that. Doesn't necessarily make them rich or famous, but they, they know utter happiness and it's a beautiful thing to see. I'd like to be like that someday. That's where I'd like to go. That's, that's the way I study the Bhagavad Gita. I'd like to be like that. Thanks. You better life before death. You better practice now. Practice the yoga. Gather up all your, all your thoughts and everything inside. And finally put it together as one. Don't wait. Of course, tomorrow may never be here, which you've heard many times. But try to like, get yourself whole as one. Practice the yoga every day and forget about anything outwardly that isn't there, that's not going to help. The thing is, inwardly, is you go inside, and that's what you're going to find in this whole world is beautiful. It's inside your practice and not wait till tomorrow. In other words, be in the present today when you get up tomorrow and just go right, in, right into the present to this world now. Or else, like he was saying, is 100% right. If you're going to die and you didn't finish what you have today, it's not the greatest way to die. But his words were true, I've been in those stages. But I didn't want to die because I had more to go. I had more to live for. But the thing is, when I came back, and then I find that there's another goal in life. There's always some goals that something's going to happen. Things change. Someday I'd like, to, I'd like Rodney to tell his story here. It's an amazing story, how he came back from death through his yoga practice. How long have you been? I think you may be the oldest uh, Jiva Mukti person in the room here. I mean, in terms of practicing Jiva Mukti. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, if I am, I am. If I'm not, I'm not. But the thing is, all I want to try to tell you, he asked early, why am I here? I said, it was meant to be. That's why. It was my love that's here. Because there's something always made here. I have something that can help you. And I'm trying to tell you to be, bring yourself together as your thoughts now, you know, it's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with any of us. Your thoughts are beautiful. You know, sometimes they get hurt. Other things happen to us. But the thing is, keep to your main thought as you go and you focus. Practice the yoga. And that was going to be something that you got to live for before you die. Because you can find yourself. That's when you can walk around free and you know that finally you can be where you are and you can find your happiness and all. Because once you're practice either the yoga, meditation, breathing. Once your mind is fixed, you know, you can go anywhere because it doesn't matter where you are because your focus is there. You're like in the present. You wake up tomorrow, this is better than you're dying the next day and not even know where you are. If you keep on a steady mind, then you can know where you are. You're going to find happiness. You're not disturbed. You're not distracted because you found a way to go to who, who you are. And that's the best thing of all, stay in the present. Keep your mind on your business, on your focus and your practice, and that's the best thing that will bring you happiness. Before you die, any of that, because at least you made use of the body, instead of the body making use of you, you the body's a tool to be here to find who you are. You're reminding me of something that Prabhupada wrote in a letter one time, where um, someone was asking him, you know, I have my practices that I have to do and you've asked us to go out and to teach and to try to share what we've learned with other people um, 
and sometimes I neglect my health, or I'm, a, you know, is that okay to do that? You know, to, to neglect my own well-being? He said, no. He said, even higher. It's very nice that you want to go and save the world. He said, but even higher than saving the world is saving yourself. Even higher than saving the world is saving yourself. And you're reminding me of that, so I thank you for that very much. Um, well, that couple, sense. huh? That makes hundred percent because by saving yourself, you save the world. Well, you don't want to make that an excuse to just save yourself, but you know. No, but the point is, if you're if you're drowning, how can you help someone next to you who's drowning? Um, a couple of things. One is that um, those of you who might have some additional interest in the process of initiation, come and see me afterwards. Uh, I'll explain why. Um, also, I think with the few minutes we have left, I'd like to do what we started to do and kind of let people get to know one another. So those of you who have been here before, you know that we do this sometimes. While we have our, what is it, banana bread? While you're having your, your, your vegan banana chocolate chip cake and dates, thank you very much, find someone you don't know in the room, sit down next to that person and introduce yourself and just spend a few minutes getting to know somebody while you're having your banana cake and, uh, and then uh, I'll hope to see you all again next week. Shall we do that? All right. Well, thank you. Thank you all for your company. Thank you for your wonderful ideas. Do you want to talk now or later? You can talk now. Okay. I have to turn this off anyway, so it's the perfect time. <laughs>